no realm of human existence demonstrates the utter depravity of mankind more than the marriage relationship. In the beginning, God's creation was, was called good, and when Adam and Eve were created on that sixth day, God, in an incredible account, brought them together in the first marriage ceremony, and God said at the end of that day, now this is very good. And man was created to be a loving, humble leader in the home, and the woman was created from the man to be a suitable helper, one who would follow the man's lead with joyful and intelligent submission. This is the biblical ideal for marriage. This is the joy and the wonder of the one flesh relationship. But it didn't sit well with Satan, the family, at all. Satan came in to challenge the Word of God. And he came in, he created discontent and disbelief, and sin entered the world and plunged everything on its head, and including, very directly in the text in Genesis chapter 3, the marriage relationship was turned on its head. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, don't turn there. That verse captures the curse of sin upon marriage. The Lord God says to the woman, yet your desire will be for your husband. That's not a good thing in that context. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. But, the serpent-slaying seed of the woman came, and he died, and he rose from the grave, and he sent forth his spirit, and he lives, and he ever lives to reverse the curse in this world, to reverse the curse upon our marriages. And the apostle Peter speaks of this lifting of the curse in marriage, in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and find verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. As you're turning, in the context of Peter, believers are called to proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called them out of darkness and into light to keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles, and he gives this in various spheres. First, and the sphere is for the sake of Christ submitting to the authorities of, of human government, and then for the sake of Christ in the, in the workplace, the employer-employee relationship, following the mouth closed, entrusting to God example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he moves then to the fundamental relationship that undergirds them all, he moves 
to the marriage relationship. He speaks first to the wife in verses 1 through 6, and then he speaks to the husband in verse 7. Let's pick it up then in verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And I will just say that that those husbands in this passage are probably unbelievers. Probably unbelieving husbands in that passage. Now, we move on to our verse today, which we'll be tackling, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way or likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Or, as a, the Greek text says, as a weaker vessel. Or, as the New American Standard puts that, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. And Peter's words are the will of the living God. And Peter's words, if obeyed by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, would begin in our own marriages to be reversing, already, not yet, be reversing the curse of sin in our marriages. Do you believe that? That's what Peter is driving home. And we ought to pay close attention to this text not only if we are married, um, not only if we plan to be married or are engaged to be married or probably will be married, but even if we may not be married or will never be married because it is so important for us to all be about the exhortation and the encouragement of the family in the churches, to encourage one another. Single people encouraging married people and married people encouraging single people. We are in this together, especially in our culture. Biblical marriage and biblical family is under assault. And why is that? Because marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today, I speak to the husbands very directly. I'll try not to be too direct. But I'll tell you this. In that, in so doing, I am right with you, among you, underneath you, struggling just like you are in this passage. Husbands, this is an extremely sobering verse. This is an extremely sobering verse about our intimacy 
in our closest relationships, about our communion in our closest relationships. So, let's find out why it's so important. And we're going to do that this morning by answering three questions. Three questions. Number one, how do husbands commune with their wives? How do husbands commune with their, with their wives? In verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, there are two ways that husbands commune with their wives, and both are not suggestions. Both are commands for the husbands. So number one, how do husbands commune with their wives? By living in understanding with their wives. By living in understanding with their wives. Verse 7, let's look at it. You husbands, in the same way, here it is, live, first command, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's a pretty good translation so far, I think. The Greek text reads, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge as the weaker vessel. So, husbands, you are commanded to dwell with, to live with your, your wives. And that is not a command to stop sleeping on the couch, or that is not a command to share the same rental apartment or to buy a house together. Not talking about housing arrangements, although that's true. This word dwell has overtones of intimacy and closeness and communion and fellowship. It's Peter's way of describing the intimate, one flesh relationship that is when you are welded as husband and wife together physically, emotionally, spiritually, every possible way. Live, dwell with your wives' husbands. And so believing men are to to be close with their wives and cultivate a sensitivity, a, a spiritual and emotional connection, a friendship with their wives. It's not about cohabitation. It's not about cohabitation, although that's very helpful. It's about connection and communion. And this begins to make sense if we capture this of the next phrase, according to knowledge. So how you say husbands, because immediately we're asking, how do we do this? We, sh- we ought to be. And so the answer is, according to knowledge. And this is not about your husband, men. It's not about your knowledge of the Word of God in this passage. This is about your knowledge of your wife. The context is clearly to live with one's wife according to knowledge as the weaker vessel. This is about knowing your wife, men. This is about understanding her, understanding her physical needs, understanding her emotional makeup, understanding her desires, her goals, her concerns, her frustrations, her perspectives. This is a call to know your wife. I 
I'm called to get a PhD in Jody Suzanne Rich, Jodiology. And I would argue that if a PhD in your marriage is not something that's important to you, or then today is the day to, for God to do a great work in your marriage. I'm telling you, some of us men are more concerned whether we're infralapsarian or superlapsarian. If you want to know what those means, you can look them up later. Or whether we're historic pre-mill eschatology or we're future pre-mill eschatology. And we're going to get that right. But I'm telling you, some of us are pursuing that and have not yet graduated high school in understanding our wives. In fact, some of us are high school dropouts when it comes to this. Now, it's never too late to start studying your wife. Today is the day to go back to school. Notice that some of the motivation and explanation for that understanding is given in that controversial little phrase, as a weaker vessel. I, I definitely will not scratch all your itches now as I explain what this means, so I'll have to wait another day. But let me help as best that I can in a short period of time. Okay, what does it mean as a weaker vessel? Well, both the husband and wife are a vessel. Okay, what is a vessel? The idea of vessel is a created human being that is shaped perfectly and as a unique instrument for God's plan and purposes, right? You've got different beautiful pottery works that the potter shapes and vase or vase or however you like to say it. They're shaped by God for a purpose. And so it comes back to God creating us as vessels fit for the role for, that he has given for us. Notice further that the term weaker implies a comparison, weaker. There's a comparison here. So we're both vessels, husband and wife, created by God, and as complements in marriage. And the husband is shaped, is shaped by God to have loving, humble leadership, and the woman is shaped by God to be, have joyful, intelligent submission. These are the roles for which we were created, and God has built vessels accordingly, and our culture is shifting to the point where the new normal for our culture is Genesis 3.16, that cursed verse, on absolute steroids. Now, both vessels are created by God, but still, what does weaker vessel mean in this context? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean in this context. We see that she is not weaker spiritually in verses 1 through 6 because she's saved and he isn't. Uh, She is not weaker intellectually in verses 1 through 6 because she understands the gospel and receives it and her husband doesn't. 
So the weakness is not a reference to moral stamina or strength of character or mental capacity or anything of this, this sort. And I wouldn't say that it is any speaking at all of any emotional weakness either in the sense of a negative. Since when is a difference negative? Our culture says that. That's not what God's words means. A difference isn't negative. It's beautiful. The best interpretation here, then, is that when you're talking about the different ways God has created the vessel, is referring to the woman's physical makeup. Basically, you capture 95% of this if you speak of her strength, physically. In general, women generally possess less physical strength than men. There are exceptions that prove that rule, and our culture rages against God's created, created order, and is providing us more and more hormone-induced exceptions, and so on. But this is the plain meaning of the text. Peter has no negative implications in his mind at all. It's only our flesh, even as believers, that reads that into this verse. We are both vessels created by God, men and women. We are both instruments of God for His plan and purpose. We are formed by Him to be used for His glory, designed to complement each other as one flesh. And so Peter is reminding husbands, please keep this in mind, that she is physically the weaker instrument of the two. And, and part of that physicality is even, even the way his God has created her emotions for tenderness and nurturing and sensitivity is a beautiful way he's created that vessel. Husbands, if you're going to start your schooling on your wife, you got to start there, he says. So, husbands, dwell with your wife intimately and live with her in an understanding way as a weaker vessel. Now, Husbands, listen, we're going to get really direct in this message. Where is the room for rough, harsh, insensitive, rude, condescending, panicked, lazy husbands? Where's the room for that? Peter says, be sensitive to her. Treat her with affection, cultivating companionship. Hold her up as that beautiful vase created by God specifically to complement you as her husband. Nourish, Paul says it this way, nourish and cherish her as your own body. That's how Paul says it. Wash her with the Word. I mean, husbands, praise God for this. God did not create your wife physically as a rugged toolbox. I mean, have you looked at your garage lately? No, but a precious vase to be cherished and protected and tenderly handled. The husband is called to be the protector. The husband is called to be the hard-working, at-all-cost provider. This doesn't mean the woman can ever work outside of the home. Don't hear me say that. The husband is still called to be the hardworking at all cost provider. 
The husband is called to lay down his life out of love for his wife, to lead her tenderly. And all this makes sense that God has created her to compliment him and him to compliment her and that she would support this worthy protector, to encourage and help this hardworking provider, to come under the teaching of a faithful priest at home. Is there any wonder that Paul's only word to husbands in Colossians is this? Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Done. So let's get more practical now as we sum up the first command Peter gives to husbands living in an understanding way with their wives as a weaker vessel. Men, how can we understand our wives? Here's how. Many ways. Let me just help us a little bit. Number one here, we can stop fixing them by blurting out answers. We can listen, listen, listen. We need to not just listen to their words. We need to pay attention and listen to their hearts. Their hearts. Stuart Scott, wonderful book called Exemplary Husband, said that we can know our wives better by observing them, asking questions, experiencing their world. We can ask them about their likes and their dislikes. This is how we can further our education, get our master's degree. Ask her about her capabilities, her limitations. Discover her joys, her hobbies, her challenges, her sorrows, her her fears, her temptations. Learn those things and long to meet her physical and spiritual needs. Find out what communicates love to her and what communicates indifference to her and dislike to her, like my selective hearing, for example. I know the culture is full of many jokes, right, about the impossibility of fully understanding a woman. I didn't say fully understanding a woman. I'm saying growing in an understanding. But we can't get around this text, and men, we have to stop being passive about this. We do. So what might it look like then to live with your wife in an understanding way as a weaker vessel? The whole thing. How does that look like? Well, from the biggest possible picture here, it means that you need to think about being the primary protector and the primary provider and the primary priest of the home. And and if we're going to do this passage, there's going to be some serious repentance that needs to take place by the Holy Spirit. In my life, which has started to happen this week, (laughs) so I've I've got a five-day head start, and it will begin to happen in your life. So we're going to have to stop men. We're going to have to stop stuff and start stuff, or if you like the biblical way of putting it, we're going to have to put off and put on. So how how do we do this first command? Well, stop burdening your wife with the three Ps. Stop weighing her down with everything. And then watch this. Belittling belittling her when she fails. 
Stop piling on discouragement on her shoulders. Men, stop being an emotional whiner and complainer. Men, have faith. Have faith. Stop being so uninterested in her. Stop being so gruff and harsh. And then start involving her, being with her, talking with her, laughing with her, praying with her, studying God's word with her. Men, start helping her with the house. Help her with the kids. Get into the kitchen. Speak to her with tenderness. Spend time with her. Allow her to have time with her friends and hobbies. Have real conversations with her. Touch her and hold her and tell her that you love her and look her in the eyes and text her a love note and be sensitive by your actions to your wife. This is all about sensitivity. This is about consideration. This is about companionship and friendship. This is about communing with your wife, dwelling with her. This is actually exciting. When you begin to experience this, it is really exciting. And we don't experience this, there's loss. Here's what I'm learning. Men, start here. Calm down and be encouraging. Start there. Calm down and be encouraging. The first way husbands commune with their wives is by living and understanding with their wives. The second way husbands commune with their wives in this text is by honoring their wife. The text says, and, second command, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So the idea there is to assign or bestow honor upon your wife. That is, are you ready? To hold her, remember that, that, that vase? Come on, men, that vase in your hand. Hold her in very high esteem. That's what that means. And in the culture of Peter's day, this was shocking. They wouldn't probably receive this without the Spirit, or we wouldn't receive any of this without the Spirit. In Peter's day, Greek and Roman men viewed their wives as much lower than themselves. And Peter comes along and says, show her esteem and thankfulness of the very highest degree. Put her on a pedestal. This word for honor was used by Josephus, the Jewish historian who described the outpouring, and that's what it was. That's what it was. The outpouring of honors and accolades that Emperor Titus paid to his troops after they destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And he lavished honor upon his troops for that mighty victory. That's the word that is used here for how we honor and call and praise and esteem her highly because of her beauty and intrinsic worth and her who she is and how God has made her. And Peter's going to press this command home. He's going to undergird it by telling the husbands that they are not superior to their wives. Look at what the text says. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, as a co-heir of the grace of life. That is eschatological life, eternal life. That grace to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Husbands, your wives, and we know this, 
are created in the image of God. She and you together, them, let them rule. Not you, them rule. She is to have, and she created in the image of God, to have dominion over the sphere for which God has given her to do. She is of the same nature. She is of the same essence. She is equal to you in every possible way. And she has an equal status before God as a daughter of the Most High God. And she too has a future inheritance in heaven that is imperishable and undefiled and cannot be touched, reserved in heaven for her. She too is a living stone built up upon are the chief cornerstone of our Lord Jesus Christ. She, too, is united to Christ and part of the people of God. She is part of the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Husbands, your wives are not spiritually or intellectually inferior to you. Honor them as a co-heir of the grace of eternal life. So husbands, how do you know if you're honoring your wife? That's the question. Well, let's just take it step by step. Are you showing her esteem and thankfulness and gratitude and praise? This is the heart of the Word of God for the marriage relationship. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 28. Listen to this. Speaking of a godly wife, her children rise up and bless her. Kids, you rising up, blessing your mom? Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Unbelievable. Mm. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Oh, husbands, how relevant for us when many husbands, even Christian husbands, take better care of their car than their wife. You say, well, okay, I kind of get the general praise, but how can I honor my wife as a co-heir of the grace of life? Okay, let's go general and specific to get more into the how. I would say this, you recognize that she is a co-heir of the grace of life. Are you ready? Put your seatbelts on. Therefore, the best way to honor her is to join with her in her. The pursuit of God. This is precisely where we fall on our face, husbands. Do we pray with our wives? Do we lead them in the word of God? Do we wash them in the word? What is the devil opposing more than anything else? Doing the dishes or praying? Well, both, but praying. It starts with remembering we're co-heirs of the grace of life. We show them honor most when we come along them in their pursuit of God. And so then we begin to encourage and affirm the work of the Holy Spirit that we see in her life. And we honor her in that. And we fellowship around the Word of God and pray with 
with our wives, and we're in true fellowship with her. As Paul would put it, we're washing her with the Word of God, and we're even receiving her spiritual encouragement. Oh, and yes, her spiritual rebukes, too, as a sister in Christ. Men, honor your wife. Then specifically, it starts spiritually, but it gets specific when you seek her opinion and her ideas and her thoughts and dreams about parenting and about family vision and about everything. When you don't demean her, that's dishonoring to demean her. When you allow her to just go for her sphere of dominion. You don't talk down to her, but you honor her. You never throw her under the bus in front of the children or anyone else, ever. You heap upon her words of praise and appreciation. And Stuart Scott gets very direct and very practical in his book. I'll just add a couple from Stuart. Tell her what she means to you and how thankful to God you are for her. Only say things to her that will build her up. And even if there's some constructive criticism or admonishment, it's done in an encouraging way. Build her up always in front of other people. Never say things that belittle her to others. Listen, now this is important. Derogatory jokes and sarcasm when it comes to your wife, are almost always destructive, in Stuart Scott's opinion. Husbands, commune with your wife by living with her in an understanding way and showing her honor as a fellow heir, a co-heir of the grace of life. Second question. What is the massive implication if husbands do not commune with their wives? If your seatbelt is not on, time to fasten it securely. What is the massive implication if husbands do not commune with their wives? Look at the text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Husbands, you realize that if you are not communing with your wife by obeying these two commands, by the power of the Spirit, then God notices. Then God is seriously offended. And this will negatively affect your prayers offered to God. And prayer is when and where we experience the awe and the intimacy of communion with God. Brothers, if we do not commune with our wives, we will not commune with our Lord. 
or rather, he will not commune with us. The word hindered here means to be cut into, or in the Greek, to be impeded, to be interrupted. What this text is saying is that our prayers will be interrupted by God. Now, God will not stop loving the believing husband who's struggling in this area, because we're all struggling in this area to some degree. We're in a covenant commitment of love with God, but there is such a thing in relationships, am I right, of broken communion and broken fellowship. Yes? And so, this phrase is sobering. The last phrase of verse 7, then, is the discipline of God. This is the grieving of the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, how we, now this is everybody, how we relate to each other matters when it comes to our relationship with God. They're connected, and especially in marriage. Husbands often say, I, you're theologically on point, brother. You have a vital ministry for God, brother. You say you have a close walk with God. But if you're not living with your wives in an understanding way and showing her honor while you say that, I would say that you are deceived. And I do ask you to seriously consider God's word this morning to get on your knees, to be teachable, humble, and transparent from the Spirit of God, and allow the Lord to do a work and just repent and say, Lord, help me. And that cry for help will be the closest and most powerful and intimate expression of communion you've had in weeks if you're living out of fellowship with your wife. That cry for help. Humble yourself. Listen, for a true believer, the second half, men, listen, this is true, isn't it? I look around at the true believing men of this church. I love you, and you love me. This is scary, this second half of this verse. You know why? Because you love Christ. The implication of having a distant and cold An ungodly marriage is a distant and cold and broken fellowship with your God, and that is horrific. Now, of course, for the unbeliever who's just reading and hasn't ever received this, they don't pray anyways. What do they have to lose? Neither here nor there. But for the believer, for the believing man in this congregation... For that, for that man who has known God and has come to know him, who loves him, who tasted and seen that the Lord is good and has experienced deep times of fellowship in the word and in prayer and that wonder of the sense of closeness and being right with God and growing more and more into the image of God and having the prayers answered, for that to be interrupted, there's nothing more terrifying that than that. There's nothing more dissatisfying than, than, 
feeling like God does not seem to be there anymore, that there's a lack of communion with him, that you feel distant from him, that your prayers go up to the roof and they bounce right off. That is not acceptable for a son of the Most High God. So that your prayers are not blocked, so that your prayers are not interrupted, so that your prayers are not ineffective. What could be more horrific than that, brothers? Brothers, if we will not commune with our wives, the Lord will not commune with us. So the final question is simply this. Husband, how are you communing with your wife? How are you communing with your wife? How are you doing? Chances are you're not doing particularly well all the time at this. I'll admit it if you will. What are we going to do, men? Well, we are going to repent and we are going to believe the truth of who we are in Christ. Is your wife a fruitful vine? Or she, is she withering on the vine? Now, Psalm 128, just listen. Psalm 128, write the reference down. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. There's the fruitful vine. Psalm 128, I read a blog entitled Withering Wives. Withering Wives is a trend in marriages, of course, even Christian marriages within our church, in good churches. It's the opposite of this beautiful vision of Psalm 128. The wife, instead of being a fruitful, flourishing vine, is seen as withering under the hot sun, waterless, and rootless, her leaves start to curl up into themselves and the vibrant colors and the greens fade. She simply goes through the motions of her day. And she starts to shut down. She receives from her husband little to no encouragement, no emotional support, no understanding, no honor, no intimacy from her husband. She receives active harshness or passive neglect from her husband. She, she attempts because it pains her. She attempts to share tearfully that she is struggling, but her husband doesn't listen, simply tries to fix it, shuts her down with a lack of response. He sees her overwhelmed and struggling with the children, the withering wife or the fruitful vine. Husbands, how do we cultivate a fruitful vine and not a withering wife? How? 
how can this curse be turned around in our marriages? Peter tells us, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. You know what this is, husbands? This is a simple call to love our wives. This is, you say, I don't know what it means. You keep quoting, Pastor Jeff, love your wife as Christ loved the church and all of that. Well, Peter tells us what this looks like. Will you have to sacrifice to, to fulfill this? Yes, because love is sacrificial. Ask Jesus and his love for his bride. Is this impossible and that's why you're going... Yes, that's why we're believers. We have the spirit of Christ within to do this. But husbands, your marriage is a picture of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And Peter's whole desire is for our marriages to picture the gospel, to adorn the gospel, that we would proclaim to a dark and dying world the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. Genesis 3.16 does not have the last word for our marriages in this church. It does not. The curse is being undone. We are being renewed by the power of Jesus Christ. It is possible. It is impossible for a woman with an unbelieving husband to do one through six. Are you kidding me? And likewise, it is impossible for a man to do this. But we have Jesus. We are forgiven. We are connected to him. We have his spirit. And the power of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ lives within. And our Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for our marriages that our faith would not fail. And we have the power and the presence of the Spirit of the living God who has been sent to dwell inside of us. So I know, I know there is hope for my marriage. And I know that there's hope for your marriage. And only brothers... It's only if our marriages are strong will this church and this world flourish. And I'm telling you, husband, it doesn't start with your wife. It starts with you. You've got to take the lead in your marriage. And I believe there's hope. You know why? Because Peter believed that. And he said in verse 24 of chapter 2, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let us pray.